I just loved the songs in the background. <laughs> I had to mute the mic so I could stop lolling. And welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking to Ahana, who is Head of Cybersecurity and IT Risk at the Financial Times. Hi, Ahana. Hello. So I hear that you two are at some cybersecurity conference. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, we are sitting in an empty pub on top of the conference. It's playing early morning two-pack, which can only be a win, called Besides London, which is a conference for those people who don't want to go to the bigger conference called InfoSec, which is running simultaneously somewhere else, where people usually go to talk to vendors and buy cybersecurity products. I have a suspicion that they just go there to get free USBs and swag. So I think we've got the best deal. I'm now imagining you having some kind of rap battle with them, and I'm pretty sure you'd win. Thanks. It only happens with a pop, then it's off the record. Awesome. So you work at the Financial Times now. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? This is, this is week two, day three. So a lot of people will be thinking, hey, this isn't about government, so tell the audience a bit about how we know each other. Kamala, Kylie, and I used to work together at the Ministry of Justice during different overlapping periods. So that's my background. So I, I spent a vast chunk of my career in the UK government. So I guess it's still justified to have me on the show. Just, you scrape in. So how did you get into cybersecurity in the first place? That's a really interesting question, actually. I never thought that I'd start out in cybersecurity at all. What happened was I was taking a gap year. I was going to be an academic mathematician, and I thought I'd take a gap year and just go off and do crypto, which is one of my guilty pleasures. And that just became a career. I went up to Scotland had enough of London, sort of fell into it, really. I can literally hear the R&B in the background. I'm loving that. The soundtrack to this convo. Just adding an extra something. <laughs> yeah. So you said you went to Scotland. What did you actually work in before you worked at MOJ? So before I worked at MOJ, I was working for um, a company called NCR, which is a massive company, but not very well known. And what it does is it, it manufactures cash machines around the world. So if you went to Tesco in the UK there's a very good chance that the cash machine you'll encounter is an NCR cash machine. And my job there was to show that they couldn't be broken into, which never happened. They could always be broken into. So my job was to test both the hardware and the software side of cash machines. With that background, does the current situation with the global finance just freak you out? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a different scale. But what, what really does freak me out is how sort of at mercy of all of this technology we are. And the fact that we haven't really thought about security before, say, a few years ago when it became really hot. So as you said, you ended up at the Ministry of Justice. How did that come about? So a friend of mine, I used to, I used to work for Apple in my university days. And a friend of mine wrote to me while I was in Scotland. And I was thinking, oh, I've, I've got to go back to London and start working in finance or something stupid like that. And then he said, uh, I bet you to apply for this job because it's probably like six times more than what you were expecting in terms of pay. So, you know, there's a long shot. Just go for it. And it turned out that they wanted to interview me. I mean, the reason I think they wanted to interview me is because nobody else applied. And yeah, so I came to London. I put on my best pencil skirt to be interviewed by a room full of white men in shorts and ended up getting a job. So there you go. We used to hear rumors about your interview process. Tell us a bit of a story about that. I mean, as far as government's concerned, recruitment can be quite challenging. 
but I had a somewhat easy ride where I came and everything was really informal. I didn't really have the names of any people who were going to interview me, so I did some digging around what the tech department looked like and who were the key people and so on. And so one of my interviewers at the end of the interview asked me if I had any questions. I asked him how his laptop was doing and he was really, really freaked out because how would I know about his laptop not working and how did I know who he was? That became sort of a running gag about the reason I got hired. That's awesome. Good story. Did you find anything unique about working in prisons and justice compared to other industries? Yeah, I think it was it was really quite challenging because for once, technology wasn't the core business. Technology was a tool in getting to the end goal, which is to make sure that the prison system actually runs smoothly. And that was really interesting because from a cybersecurity point of view, the job was completely application focused and applied rather than sort of thinking about cybersecurity in isolation, especially at that sort of risk level where if you mess up or if there is sort of a wide scale problem, it doesn't mean that, you know, a newspaper is down for a few hours or it doesn't mean that a cash machine has to be replaced in some part of the world. It has very serious consequences for the country. And so really, I suppose the degree of seriousness was new. The age of the technology was quite new as well, because the kind of technology that we're using was probably older than I am. How do you balance the risk element that you mentioned with being pragmatic about security? I think there are pockets of security culture, especially sort of around a high risk environment that are very, very risk averse that think that the more security you put in, the better, often at the cost of how valuable that security really is, often at the cost of practicality. And I I did find that that was the sort of culture when I first joined um, the ministry and we were lacking a lot of cross-government motivation to do things properly because security was often seen as a compliance exercise. So in high-risk scenarios, I think it's easy to forget that you are getting to an end goal, which is not security. Security is part of the whole process. Do you think the Ministry of Justice was doing things differently to other departments? Oh, definitely. I think that we had the upper hand in starting the culture of cybersecurity as it exists now. For instance, that department was the first department to ever hire an ethical hacker in central government. And I don't really think that there are that many ethical hackers, even in the intelligence services, an incredibly forward-thinking move. And that sort of set the chain of events in motion where departments like the Government Digital Service and around the Cabinet Office, they started thinking about security in more practical terms. If you were going to give a shout out to one of those other departments for doing cybersecurity well, who would it be? I think I would give a shout out to the National Cybersecurity Centre, definitely, because I think GCHQ as a whole used to have this image of being almost entirely impenetrable and almost entirely untouchable and unknowable. And I think with an organisation like National Cyber Security Centre, they have really redeemed themselves of that image. I think, you know, now that different businesses and different industry sectors all across the UK can just approach the National Cyber Security Centre and really look to them for guidance in a really hands-on way has really changed government as a whole for the better, I think. How do you think it could be improved? Where do I start? (laughs) I think government has this very practical problem where the technology has operated for 25 or 30 years without security being designed in mind at all. So there's, there's a lot of work to do. But I think also as departments, we have a lot of pressure to change a lot quite quickly. And that's difficult to do when you're doing it at such a big scale. That's one problem, which is sort of more of a logistical problem. 
I think the other problem is a cultural problem where I think security is still not seen as part of business as usual in a sort of seamless way. So if there is technology that's being delivered, I don't think practical security has become an organic aspect of that yet. There's a lot of work done around information assurance and compliance and you know anything that you might need to do uh, when the ICO comes knocking, but not necessarily having those technological mitigations in place to make sure that your risk is actually acceptably low. I remember a couple of years ago when we were at this venue at 404Con, we ran a really cool exercise for the people at the conference where it was a capture the flag competition and you and your team set up a fake prison system which people had to hack into and the first one to get to the end of the competition won a prize. That was a really cool thing about the space that we worked in at the time. Can you think of something else that you're allowed to tell us about, which is an interesting or a, an unusual story? Actually, that's a really good reminder. I completely forgot when we run that capture the flag competition. Nobody else in government before that had run a capture the flag event at a security conference ever. And so when I went off to work at the NCSC for a bit, the team there was really, really cheesed off that we were the first to do it. So there was a bit of good sort of healthy rivalry there. In terms of other stories, there are some really, really good stories from the Cheltenham side of things. I'm not sure how much I can talk about. You know, the trouble is the nature of the work is such that there's a lot that you can talk about, but you can't really go into any real detail. I think one fun story is that in my early days at Justice, Cabinet Office used to run a central government blog, and I really wanted to publish a blog in the way I'd written it, free of government editorial embargo and so on. And so I got really, really psyched out that they weren't publishing it straight away. I decided to take matters into my own hands and got a bit carried away to show that I could publish it uh, without having authentication to their back end. And then swiftly managed to bring the whole blog down and then got into a lot of trouble, which I then had to explain to my boss. Thankfully, he took my side and ended up telling the cabinet office that they should actually thank me for showing that the government block could be brought down so easily. So I guess that's, that's a happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, that just kind of reminds me about how we actually had some really cool leaders at MOJ. I think like in other places, everyone would have been fired. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. Cool. So um, you've ended up at the Financial Times. What made you make that move? There comes a point where you get such a good song. Another tune. So I think it comes to a point where you realize that there isn't anywhere to go in government and the set of challenges that you have are very different from other industries. I really wanted to sample what was out there. I guess I had that sort of teenage rebellious phase where I wanted to fly the nest for a bit and see what was around. But also it's a very different environment outside, I think. Often in government we can be quite insular, quite inward looking and you know not think about how the industry is going and how the security industry is emerging and the threats that are coming out of it. And so I thought, you know, I wanted to work in, you know, a slightly different environment where things were smaller scale and dynamic in a different way. Do you see any stark similarities or differences to working in government? One of the advantages of it being small scale, and bear in mind that it's only been a couple of weeks that I've actually been working here. One of the advantages of Gill is that at the end of the day, you know why you're there. You have to have a newspaper released at the end of the day. And so everything that the company does 
is geared to support that. And so it's a very tangible goal that's in sight. In comparison, I found that in government, the goal was often not that clear. So, you know, when you say, why are you doing what you're doing? It's for national security is a pretty vague answer. So I think the focus is definitely different. And it's, it's a smaller team, and we're not trying to change the world. I guess the paper is, not the security team. So culturally very different. Um, the scale of the problem is very different. And the technology is very different. I mean, not that different. Uh, you know, we still have some pretty shocking legacy that we did back in government. But it's not at the same scale, and the constraints of removing it aren't the same either. Yeah, do you think there's anything that you spotted even your first few weeks at the Financial Times that you think that government could learn from? Oh, absolutely. The general drive of the staff at the Financial Times to get involved in security, to to make it part of their work life, to not see it as a barrier to delivering stuff. It's a very different attitude from government where these things take a long time to percolate amongst the existing culture. That's quite different at the Financial Times where, I guess, because the team's smaller, it's easier to be really excited about things and to get the communications out and to really evangelize people and, you know, think about security, to educate them on security, whereas it's much harder in government for a variety of different reasons. And is there anything in particular you already miss about working in government? Definitely, I miss the people. You know, I, I hired my own team from scratch. It was just me when I started out. You know, it's something that's quite close to me, quite close to my heart. So I definitely miss the people. I miss you two sitting on either side. That's one thing I miss. The other thing I miss is having a sense of doing things for the greater good. And this sounds really, this sounds a bit dodgy, I know. But there's, you know, you take a lot of pride in working towards improving your country. And in the private sector, the incentives are slightly different. Yeah, just a shout out that you can come work in New Zealand anytime. I was actually thinking about moving there because my other half and I are massive Lord of the Rings fans and we basically want a hobbit cottage somewhere uh, in the middle of nowhere and like raise some sheep. I'm pretty sure if you told the government of New Zealand that they would organize for that to happen. I'm not even joking. So desperate are they for talent <laughs> and it was so like great people. And equally, of course, I have to extend an offer on behalf of Canada. If you ever wish to come to Ottawa, sexiest city in the world it is. <laughs> That's going to happen. You mentioned earlier the term ethical hacker, and I'm just wondering whether it would be worth explaining to our listeners what that term means. Yeah, I think four years ago, it was a far more ambiguous term than it is today. It's used a lot more today. Back then, it was a bit of a joke, job title. So what an ethical hacker is, is um, somebody who tries to hack into an organization's systems to ultimately improve their system, to show that it can be done, and think about their risks in the form of how an attacker would go about breaking in basically simulating an attacker or a hacker somewhere. So without the constraints of abiding by the law, and I say this with sort of with air quotes, because you have your employer's permission to hack in, even though the hacker doesn't, you have that kind of freedom to do whatever you want. What are the most common misconceptions around cybersecurity? This sounds really unfortunate, but there's a lot of misconceptions around cybersecurity. Something that I find quite pervasive is people place a disproportionate amount of time and investment and energy in training and making aware their non-technical staff without necessarily investing into the technology that goes under it. You can't 
educate somebody about the risks around using Internet Explorer 6 on a Windows XP machine in 2018 if you haven't upgraded the Windows XP machine to the best of their intentions and the best of their training and awareness, things will go wrong because it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the technology. So I think often at the cost of really addressing the root cause of where the risk is coming from, we often get misguided by the latest and the greatest and want to educate everybody around that. Do you hate the term cyber? Yes. I wish it would die because when I was little, cyber meant something completely different. And I think if you were to literally translate, it will mean security around romantic internet meetups, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, throwback. Cyber, like, yeah, gives me sort of like throwbacks to the kind of tunes you're listening at the moment. This is much better than cyber. (laughs) It's true. I think it was 96 when the film Hackers came out. And I remember like terrible computer graphics at the time and they were trying to remodel cyberspace. And if you go and watch that film, you'll realize how truly awful the word cyber is. You must get asked to speak a lot at conferences and on podcasts. No, I'm going to say this is my first podcast. So yeah, I'm very privileged. Amazing. We're very privileged to have you on as um, your first podcast experience. How do you balance having that public persona with also being in sort of secret squirrel security? So it's really hard because when I was in government, I was, you know, I was really all about the secret squirrel thing, not because anything I did was a particular threat to my own personal safety, but because I never came out of the secret squirrel mode. I've been in it since I was a teenager. I just never wanted to not have it. So for instance, I've never had a social media account on anything, which is kind of good for a few reasons, but bad for a lot more, especially now that I'm in a private sector, quite high profile role. But I find it quite liberating to have a sense of being anonymous, I think, because in security, especially because it's such a small circle and quite an incestuous circle, it's quite easy to fall into the sort of cyber celebrity culture and sort of really big yourself up. But I, I've always sort of felt that, you know, even if people don't know my name, I'd rather them know about the work that I'm doing. And so if you were to Google my name, you probably wouldn't find a lot, probably it cropping up at a certain conference that I've spoken at or something like that. But you would find almost no personal information about me at all. Wow, that's amazing. How do you actually have any friends without a social media profile? I do that really abhorrent, non-fashionable things of talking to people. Gross. Yeah, you mentioned about the conference that is across the road in in London being very pale, male and stale. As a woman working in cybersecurity, have you ever had any annoying things crop up or any funny or ridiculous stories? Throughout my government career, it was a case of being in a meeting room with 10 middle-aged white men in suits who could all be my dad and trying to tell them what the right thing to do was which made for a lot of really, really awkward conversations because they would assume that I was either the intern or the PA and I was in jeans and trainers and a t-shirt with my hair down. And I did not have the air of being an equal to them at all, I think, in their eyes. Yes, there were quite a lot of really interesting experiences, uh, not just from being a woman in security, but also from being Asian young and female and not very corporate. Yeah, that totally makes sense. How did you deal with those situations? 
all round, I got quite lucky, primarily because I had really good support in the form of mentors and management. I was quite lucky that I didn't have any sort of very blatant issues with sexism. It's about how seriously people are taking you. And I find that in the tech world, the currency of respect is technical ability. If somebody has preconceptions about who you are, you have the upper hand the minute you start talking because you can blow all of that away. I mean, that'll always be there. In tech, I think we have that advantage of if something's wrong, it's wrong and there's no gray area around it. You know what you're talking about, you'll be okay. Just for some like real world questions now on cybersecurity, do you tape your laptop and devices? Do you know what? I don't actually, but my other half, he does. And I think it's because he's going out with me. Which is really weird because, you know, I don't have a tape on my webcam and I don't like block my mic and and all of that. Because if somebody really wants to find out what you're doing, they'll do it anyway, regardless of the tape on your webcam. I'm not paranoid at all. Also, do you ever just wake up in the morning and go into work and think, oh my God, we are all totally screwed? Yeah, I I think most days I think that. It's it's just a passing block because they are so constantly evolving at a speed with which none of us can keep up. Yeah, I think that all the time. When you have a pretty static, deep problem that's going to take you a long time to resolve and you've got all this flouncy security stuff coming out of the industry and coming out of the world, you do think, oh my goodness, I am completely overwhelmed. How are we ever going to get to a point where we're okay? And how do you cope with that? I think you kind of take things, take things sort of step by step. As you would say, Kamala, keep your eyes on the prize and, you know, think about the team that you've built and think about the people around you and you know, use them for, for positivity and support. Because if you're lucky enough to work in an incredibly switched on culture as I am, you know, you'll get there. It might be slow and painful, but you will get there. We've talked about how you're not on any social media channels. At this point in the podcast, towards the end, we usually ask our interview person to recommend a Twitter account. So in this case, I'm going to ask you instead to recommend perhaps a news source and you're not allowed to say the Financial Times. The real crazy kids who are super interested in security research, there's a Twitter handle called The Grug, G-R-U-G-U. And he's basically uh, this guy who just tweets about really hilarious security stuff. And so definitely check him out. When my brain is quite saturated with dry security news, I just look at his Twitter and it gives me quite a refreshing take on things. So definitely that. Hacker News is quite a regular news source for all things security, but also all things technology and all things nerds might find interesting from a cultural point of view. So it's just a collection of like really cool articles that are polled almost every minute, and you can just go and like, you know, spend an entire day on And finally, one cool person that is neither me nor Kamala working in government doing awesome stuff. Can it be a team? Absolutely. Well, I think the security engineering team at the Ministry of Justice, I'm not there anymore. But as I said earlier, they're all very close to my heart. And the reason I say that they're really cool without sort of any personal benefit or gain or feeling smug is that they're all a bunch of people who are looking at security in a very different way than anybody else in government. And often we've found that even, you know, bigwigs in the intelligence services listen to them because they have a fresh take on things. They're doing an amazing job. Yeah, I just hope that they the luxury to keep on doing it. That's wicked. We will definitely be keeping an eye on them. 
Thankfully, for the end of our podcast, we've come to a hopeful note with Gabrielle Dreams playing on the R&B playlist in the background. Such a tune. Ahana, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks, Ahana. That was awesome. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. First thoughts are that I think we should have that soundtrack for every interview. You picked that pub perfectly. I was having flashbacks to my youth, so that was good. Secondly, since the interview just made me like really homesick. I've been in so many meetings since leaving MOJ where I've just thought, God, I wish Ohana was here to speak some sense. It was just so cool hearing her again and her approach to solving these problems with security and also balancing out how to be both secure and also get stuff done and be pragmatic. That was awesome. How about you? Definitely did make me, as you said, quite reminiscent of our time at Ministry of Justice and the kind of conversations we could have were at such a calm and pragmatic and sensible level when it came to security. And I think that's really unusual. And I probably took it a bit for granted whilst we were there that we just had this incredible team that Ahana had built up with Dave Rogers as well. And we really leaned on that more than I realized. Definitely miss it. The other part for me was when she was talking about what it's like to be an underrepresented group in government and especially in the security space, which is generally, in my experience, fairly homogenous. We've all been in those meetings where it's a group of older white men and they're all in suits and hugely overcautious about the way that we do things. And her experiences of coming into that, not only with her really incredible skills and expertise and appropriate response to risk, but also just what it's like to be in that room and be assumed to be the intern or the assistant. I really liked her answer when we asked her, what advice would you give to someone from an underrepresented group coming into those spaces? And her advice was basically just be really awesome at your job. And I loved that because she obviously so clearly is. And she was just able to nail it and say, you know, if you go into a space where people are judgmental about your abilities, and you then proceed to be excellent at them, there's not much they can do about that. Yeah, I absolutely love that too. I thought that was really, really cool. And also, I liked how she talked about her interview at MOJ, and how she came in in like a really nice skirt, and it was looking great. And then she just met these guys who we actually know in sort of jeans and a t-shirt, and how that can also feel quite jarring for people as well. But obviously she turned it around and managed to really freak, I assume, Dave out by uh, talking about his laptop being broken. So that's just like a really small microcosm of how that can happen. And also just something to bear in mind in terms of One Team Gov and how some people from different spaces will look different or act different. And we signal differently depending on different groups, but how we can try and work to like level that out. The story of her interview and how she managed to find out that information about the interview panel before she went in there. I don't know about you, but I remember that that had absolutely legendary status when we were at Ministry of Justice. And even beyond, like people would talk about the ethical hacker that we had in our team. If I remember rightly, she blogged for us really early days when I came to Ministry of Justice and blogged anonymously as just the Ministry of Justice ethical hacker and became this kind of enigmatic figure amongst government digital. It brought back memories of that and how respected she was in that space. And also all the barriers she broke, being a woman of colour and being quite young, and just all of the expectations that people have of that. And as you said, when someone comes into a space, 
you know, without realizing it, we all have our own unconscious bias. And she managed to navigate that so professionally and just really calmly and in a way that demonstrated that she was just brilliant at what she does. I also found it really interesting talking about what she does now. It was a sort of catch-up session for you and me because I hadn't spoken to her since she left MOJ. I knew that she'd gone to work for the Financial Times, but what I found the most interesting about that was her reflection about it being a smaller job than MOJ. I mean, I'm sure it's not smaller in terms of her status there or salary or whatever, but in terms of the brief of what she's given, she just has to make sure that the newspaper is published and how actually often jobs in government can be really big because they are so far reaching and because they really do have impact on people's lives in multiple different ways. Yeah, I think she framed it in terms of consequences. And that's an interesting way to think about it, because she absolutely nailed it when she said the consequences of getting something wrong in the prison space in terms of their core systems would be potentially drastic and have a real risk to both the prison population and to even the general public and the staff who work in prisons compared to the consequence of getting something wrong at a big media corporation is reputational, definitely, and monetary, definitely, but not likely to be a risk to life. And the consequence of not getting a newspaper out every day is not as impactful. One would really hope so. (laughs) And finally, I think one of the strands that we're seeing with everyone that we interview, unsurprisingly, is just a passion for government and a passionate for public service. And you could really hear that come through when she talked about her work, she did not only in Ministry of Justice, but also at a cabinet office and foreign office level. That was just really great to hear. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>